This morning we're talking about covenants and uh, making covenants, the value of covenants, and the overflow of those covenants in, in love and loyalty and kindness. Um, and, and I realize in some ways that uh, covenants sound boring, uh, it's, um, but in some ways they're very practical, right? We can view that marriage as a covenant, typically. And yet at times it seems like, uh, if you view marriage as a covenant, in a sense it seems like, well, if we have to formalize the arrangement, if we have to uh, do all of these things, does it, does it make it nearly as exciting, nearly as wonderful? And yet having a covenant it provides a lot more security. There's a phrase out there, right, you know, especially those who kind of want to discount marriage as, a, as, a, as something that's valuable and precious. They say, well, well, will a piece of paper make, you, make me love you more kind of idea, right? Like, like just, do, we have to, do we have to just sign a piece of paper? Does that really matter? And, and yet, as we're going to see here, in, as we look through and, and see what David does in regards to covenant, it's not so much about that idea of loving someone more or making it more exciting or, or drumming up more emotion. It's about the security of knowing that promises have been made. That what we're, we know what we're building together. We know what we're promising to each other. And in marriage, when you say in sickness or in health, um, I've been married long enough to realize that you don't even realize what you're saying, per se, right? When you say those words, and yet the promises you are making provide so much security and so much investment and so much uh, uh, joy and peace just because you are making these promises to one another in such a way that you're like, it, I don't even know what I'm saying, but I know what, what I'm intending to do in regards to the relationship. I'm making this covenant, in a sense, unconditionally. <laughs> and this is the same kind of covenant that God has made with us. In fact, marriage, at least marriage as a kind of a Christian idea, is something that in, was instituted by God, not by man, as something to mirror the covenant that he makes with us, his rebellious children, in order to guide us in understanding the, the covenant that he's making with us and the promises that he's making to us. And so as we read through and look at this text this morning, I hope that you'll see ultimately as we get there the, the, kind, of, the kind of love that's supposed to be talked about and the security that provides to you as his child. So let's look at First um, Samuel or Second Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to kind of work through the passage and kind of highlight some things, and then we'll go back and hit what I think are two major application points that come from the passage. There's more, but of course, I'm limited on time. Um, so let's start in 2 Samuel 8, and I'm going to just note, first of all, that in 2 Samuel 8, verse uh, 15, it kind of summarizes David's reign up to this point. Notice what it says. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's son were priests. And when you see these 
Um, if, you know, well, summaries in, in the narrative of Scripture, in those times when you're kind of summarizing different things, you should view that almost like a, a panel or a hinge. It's hinging from what was previous to what's next. And so th- that's a hinge here for what's happening. And so we're going to kind of get certain aspects and then going to hinge into other aspects of the kingdom of David. And again, David's kingdom is a, is a picture of, uh, an incomplete, flawed picture, but a picture nevertheless of God's kingdom and God's reign on the earth because God's, David is a man after God's own heart. God, God has chosen him in his grace to make him king, not because of who David is, but because of who God is. And so let's, so we're going to hinge, we're going to start with the, David's victories in his, in his protection of his kingdom and we're going to see how that plays out in, a, in his protection and loyalty even to his enemies. So just follow along as I read, starting again in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg, Amma out of the hands of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one line to be spared. Israelites became servants to David and brought tribute David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rechab, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the king of river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Just a, just a couple of notes here. We're talking about war. And again, sometimes I, I read something this week that said uh, basically kind of like war is war. Like war basically is always bad. Um, and I, I want to caveat that by saying that's only if you believe that evil isn't real. If you believe that evil is just, well, so no, it's just uh, a lack of education. That if everyone would be more educated, that evil would cease to exist. Or if you believe that uh, evil is a source because evil happens because of a lack of wealth. That if everybody was just relatively equal in wealth and had enough to survive, that evil would disappear. Or if you believe that evil is, you know, just simply because we treat each other poorly, and if we just treat each other right, evil again would disappear. If you believe that about evil, then yes, war is always bad no matter what, because war is not the solution to the problem. But if evil is different from that, if evil is, in a sense, something that happens regardless of environment, regardless of training, regardless of education, regardless of wealth, that there is inside, something happens, whether it's outside of us or inside of us, that, that causes people to do evil things, to destroy, to kill, to, to, to hurt, to maim, not because of their environment, not because of the, the situation, simply because they want to or because of some other reason, then evil needs to be stopped. And sometimes the only way to stop evil is to destroy it. 
And therefore, you're back to the idea of war. And again, war is ugly, war is, but evil is ugly. And the Bible goes on to uh, talk about evil as not so much something that's outside of us, as in certain, just certain people are evil or the world is evil. The Bible talks about evil as inside of us, as the fact that we're the problem more than anything else. We chose to rebel against God. We chose to do our own thing. We chose what we wanted more than what was good for us. And no amount of education, whether you go to, whether you, you put your kids in school or homeschool them or to put them in a Christian school, no amount of education in that sense will take them away from the greatest danger to them, which is themselves. That's the, the way the Bible pictures evil, not as something that's out there so much as it's in here. And if you picture evil like that, like, okay, there's something wrong with me, you, know, you say, well, I, I don't try to be evil, okay? But we all want what we want sometimes, regardless of how it, how it affects others. And, and we're not willing to love others like we want to be loved ourselves. Not really. And we ultimately don't want God's rule of our lives. We want to rule our own lives, even though God made us and knows what's best for us. And if that's the problem, then you're saying, well, how do you deal with, if the evil's inside of me, how do I deal with it? Well, that is the great and conundrum that the story of Scripture deals with. And part of the picture of the kingdom of God is that God needs to, to conquer. He needs to rule in order to eradicate evil, to destroy it, to get rid of it. And, and we're going to see through this story here, in a sense, not only that, that David conquers his enemies and protects his people, but also what it means for us as individuals who are enemies of God in that sense. So let's just keep reading. Notice again that he takes a lot of spoil of war, especially from the north. Um, and, and he doesn't say it here, but we learn later on that he's going to use that. He doesn't use it for his own personal riches. He uses, he's setting it aside to build God's temple, but that's not mentioned here. It says, when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, of bronze. These also David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued, from Edom, from Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the, from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And by, with this last sentence here, what he's kind of doing is almost saying, let's go around and find all the enemies of Israel, and notice that David's defeated them all, okay? If you go around uh, to, from the east to the west to the south to the north, David's either conquered his enemies or they've sued for peace, so to speak, with him. And that's what Toy is doing here. And so we have, we have this, this picture, again, of David both protecting his kingdom. He's pro pro 
He's performing his kingly role of, of protecting God's people, of, of defeating God's enemies, and he's, he's doing it uh, all across the board, all around. He's, there's no enemy in that sense that David doesn't defeat. And we're going to see in chapter 10 another uh, situation where that takes place in a war that started because they wouldn't sue for peace and, and accept the, the peace that David offered. But just for a second to see again the a kind of a key point here, which is there is only one kingdom that's going to endure, and that's God's kingdom. And David here, again, is just a small picture in a small way of the rule that Christ is going to have when he defeats all of his enemies. And all nations are going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is only, in the end, going to be one kingdom. And if we get caught up in the kingdoms of this world, we are going to miss out on the kingdom of God and what God is doing in his world. But let's keep going because we've got to keep going here and we'll get back to that point a little bit later. So it summarizes David's rule. And then chapter 9, verse 1 says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And David said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And David, the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show ki- the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And the Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Here is David again. And the, the word, the word for kindness here, again, is a word that we, I've said before. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. You've got to kind of get your you know, guttural sound going, you know, chesed, okay? And it's the word for covenant loyalty. That is, that God chooses that to, 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 out of the, the covenant that he's made with us, to show kindness, to show loyalty, to show love to us. And so it's translated in various places in the Old Testament, loving kindness, um, it's compassion sometimes, loyalty other times. Um, and so it's this idea that out of the overflow of the covenant, kindness and, and goodness is, is supplied and carried, uh, shared with those, the people that the covenant is made with. And David here, it, it, you realize that most kings in the Middle Eastern context, when they became king, what they did was they got rid of the family, any threat to their rule from the previous king. And so the, the, Saul was dead, but they would get rid of uh, they would get rid of Saul's family. Saul's family would be wiped out, so there's no threat to David's rule. You see that not just in in archaeological tablets. You see that even in the Old Testament. You see Israel's king king sometimes doing the same thing. And David here is not like those kings. He's saying, I made a covenant with 
my enemy's son, Jonathan. He loved me, and I promised to love him back. And Jonathan had simply asked for one thing, because he knew how this worked. He's like, when you become king, when God makes you king, just show kindness to my family by not wiping us out. You know what I mean? That's all he asked for. He, said, he did say, he believed that he was going to be alive when David ruled, and he said, you know what, when you, when you become to rule, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll be your, uh, your right-hand man, so to speak. But all he asked for was simply that his family not be wiped out. So David here is, is, is saying, I'm going to show co- covenant love, loyalty, kindness to Jonathan. I, I, is there anyone in Saul's family, anyone at all, that's still alive? And of course, the assumption in the culture, if you heard that, would be, okay, we're going to wipe them out. And Ziba here shows up, and, and he knows of someone who's still alive, and so he, he could be assuming, you don't know exactly, it's not told in the story what his thoughts were. He could be assuming, that okay, we're going to wipe out Saul's, Saul's family now. But he, he finds Mephibosheth and he introduces, he brings Mephibosheth again from across the Jordan River where, he, where Saul, Saul's family was, was based at after the defeat. And he brings him to David. And David, instead of wiping out Mephibosheth, says, hey, I'm going to restore the, the lands of Saul to you. I'm going to give you resources. I'm going to give you uh, authority. I'm going to give you power. I'm going, to, I'm going to, not only that, but you don't have to worry about taking care of yourself. You can just eat at my table. You're just going to be part of my family, so to speak. And David does those things out of uh, loyalty and love for Jonathan. You, you get the picture, right? He had made this covenant. He made promises to Jonathan. And he, was, he didn't like, well, Jonathan's dead. I guess I don't have to keep those promises. I don't have to keep that, those promises to Jonathan because he's dead. I don't have to worry about him. No, he's like, no, is there anyone? I made this promise. Is there anyone I can show the overflow of that love to? Remember, he's the one who said, Jonathan, he showed such extraordinary love to me. And Jonathan did. Jonathan loved David more than his own soul, more than his own life. And David here wants to return that loyalty, that love to someone in Saul's family. And so Mephibosheth, son of of Jonathan, but also son of Saul. You get the picture here, right? It's kind of both an enemy and yet not. And, and which side is going to win here? And yet David says, hey, I'm going to bring you in. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But let's, let's uh, notice how this plays out. Verse, um, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now you say, well, can, he can just eat at his table. Why does he have to give him land to eat too? Well, you, you get it, right? He's, he's, not just, he's not just like treating him like this poor little kid that I'm just going to take care of and n- never take care of the shame and the problem that he had. He's like, no, you're going you're to be an equal at my table, even as you're still going to be welcome at my table and be treated as part of the family. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. 
And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Again, it's kind of ironic here because if you remember back when David captured Jerusalem, he's, he's like, they were like, the lame and the blind can defend Jerusalem against you. And he's like, I loathe the lame and the blind. And yet, he was talking more about those who, who are opposed to him. But here, Mephibosheth could have been opposed to him, but he welcomes into his family and he's, he welcomes them even though he's lame. And there's a, there's a picture here. A picture of God's grace and mercy in our lives that David is showing. But I want to show you one more evidence of covenant loyalty that gets rejected in chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally. There's, it's the same word, okay? Again, the, the Old Testament translators don't know how to translate this word all the time. It's the same word, chesed. It's the same word here for covenant loyalty. Covenant kindness. I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Hanahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. And so David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to, to, to you to search the city and to spy it out and overthrow it? And so Hanun took David's servants and shaved off the, half the, the beard of each of them and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Way. And when it was told David, he went to, sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Then the, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians at Beth Rehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the mighty hosts of men the host of mighty men and the, the Ammonites came and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Machah were by themselves in the open country. When, so basically you have the city that David's going against and, you've got, and they've got soldiers and they've got soldiers on the outside. So, so Joab realizes that he's surrounded. When Joab saw that the battle was set against them, both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they were defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves more. They, they keep fighting, basically. And, uh, and, but those men don't, don't win either. So the, but they, they don't give in. And the point in this, in this story here is you see David's desire to, just like he treated Mephibosheth with covenant loyalty and covenant kindness, he wanted to treat someone who had lost their father with that same covenant loyalty and covenant kindness. Like, we were at peace. I want to maintain that peace. And the advisors of the Ammonites are like, no, let's, let's, he's, just, he's coming to, to uh, spy out the land, to, to stir up an insurrection or do something. And, uh, let, and so they treat them with shame and disgrace. And so, again, David doesn't initiate the problem. 
But the Ammonites, again, hire men to fight and David, and, and, but ultimately they depend on God. And again, we're back to this idea that in God's kingdom, God wins. <laughs> Even when God allows defeats later on in the story of Israel, it's, it's, it's beca- not because that God is not in control, it's because he's judging his people. But in God's kingdom, God wins. And just so a couple of thoughts I have as we've read this passage so far. I think the first thing, first point I'd like to make just applicationally is if, if in God's kingdom God wins, the only thing that we can do is sue for peace. <laughs> it's not like you can sit back and say, oh, I'm going I'm to hold on to my kingdom, my idea of my life, my, my purpose for my life, my, my goals for my life, and not have God come in and, and work and, and challenge you and put you in situations, etc., where you are either going to have to submit to God's kingdom or you're going to have to fight God himself, and you're not going to win that battle. We have two choices in regard to God's kingdom. You can either fight and try to get as many people on your side as possible, or you can sue for peace. And my advice would be to sue for peace because, again, God always wins. But the question is, why do we resist? Why do we resist? Don't we understand God's kindness to us? Romans 2, 4 puts it this way, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God never starts in your life with judgment. He always starts with mercy and grace. He also always pours that out on you. And the question is, is why are you resisting it? Why haven't you sued for peace? Why have you been like, but I want what I want, and I, God, I think, wants me to do this, but I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do, and I'm going to hold on to those things as long as possible. Why do you keep doing that when God's mercy and grace pours out in your life? Why do you do that when he has sent your, his son, his only son, to die on a cross for you? Why do you resist? But we do resist. Even as Christians, when we know of God's mercy and grace and we've accepted his mercy and grace, we still resist when he's calling us to repentance. We still resist and we're like, still, I want to do what I want to do. I want to have this little area of my life all to myself. Is that so bad? We resist in various ways. The fig leaves, so to speak, of our resistance are we feel bad. And we drum up these, try to drum up as much these feelings of, oh, how, that was terrible. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that mean thing. I shouldn't have done this evil thing again. I feel really bad about it, but kind of in our heart of hearts, if we were oppressed and say, okay, but would you do it again? We'd have to be honest to say, yeah, if I was in the situation, I'd do it again because I want what I want still. And I'm just trying to feel bad but I really haven't repented. And it seems like it's just an emotional game we're playing to ourselves of how bad can we feel when that is not God's kingdom and God's intentions at all. Repentance is not about how bad you can feel, although we are called to sorrow over sin, but it's about changing our minds about what is good for us and who is, who is great and reminding ourselves that God is great and that God is good. 
Another way that we sometimes resist repentance is we play the percentages. We're kind of like, okay, yes, 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 I, I know I did this one thing wrong, but man, look at all the good things I did this week, you know what I mean? Like, look at the ways I was kind and helpful, and, and I sacrificed over here. And we forget that, that sin is like playing with poison, that, that, that this, this little nugget of independence and self-righteousness, and, and I'm okay, and I'm going to do it my way, it, this, it, it doesn't take much for that little seed to become a great big tree in our lives. It's, it's like saying, okay, yes, you know, if, if we can make an analogy of, okay, I like Subway sandwiches in various ways, and the staff laughs at me because I like to go to Firehouse Subs. They got, they got good subs. There's other places that have good subs, but Firehouse are pretty, pretty good. You know, I like to go there. And they're like, oh, again? Well, why do we have to go there? Because I like it. What's wrong with that, right? But imagine, if you will, they, they make me this perfect Firehouse Sub. It's, it's awesome. It's great. Just the way I like it. And they say, okay, it's great, but we, we dropped just, just, just a touch of cyanide into the sandwich. We think it adds some tastes, some excitement, some, you know, hey, what's going to happen kind of thing. And, uh, and, and we, think, we think it's perfect for you. Now, would you eat that sandwich? You'd say, no, no way. Why? Because I would, would lose the, the opportunity to eat all the other sandwiches that I could eat in my life because a little drop of cyanide will kill me. But that's the point of our rebellion, our rejection of God, is that that is headed for death. But we choose to be like, oh, but I just want to hold on a little bit. I just want to have my thing. And we resist. We resist. We play the percentages. We play this game of, well, I did 10 good things, so what's wise one bad thing? Another way we do it is we hide in the herd. We're like, kind of like, you know, the whole t- t- teenage thing of everybody's doing it, but it's not just teenagers that say that to themselves. It's also adults, right? We kind of hide in the herd. And sometimes we hide in the herd by being, in a sense, legalistic, by saying, well, look, I'm doing all these rules. I'm following all the rules. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Why are you at me about this one thing over here? And we kind of hide in the herd, like, look, everybody's doing it, and you're asking me to do something nobody's doing, God, so why should I do that? And again, it all comes down to we want our own autonomy. We want to rule ourselves, even when that rule means our own destruction. God made us. He made us to live flourishingly under his rule and we seek constantly to be independent of that rule to do our own thing to go our own way and it is the source of our destruction it is the evil that is in us So how did God fight that evil? Because God loves us enough and made promises to us in such a way that he is going to root out that evil. How can he possibly do that? Well, Romans 5 makes it clear. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's he's making this point, and it goes back to this whole story of Mephibosheth. This, this, This boy who's lame, who cannot save himself, so to speak, who cannot rule himself, who is really an enemy of David according to the world, David decides, because of the promises I've made, because of those promises, I'm going to pour out my kindness. I'm going to pour out my love on, on, on Mephibosheth. I'm going to show extravagant kindness to him. And that is what God does with us. Even though we were his enemies, he sends his son to, to take our punishment, to take our evil, and to die in our place. And through that process, he roots out the evil and gives us a new heart. A heart that loves to be ruled by God. A a heart that loves to live for God. And so another application point here in a sense is just return his loyalty. If God is loyal to us and he, he pours out his kindnesses on us, how much more should we return that loyalty to him? With gratitude. It's not about saying, okay, God, look at all the great things I'm going to do for you. It's about just simply being thankful for what God has done. Colossians 3 repeats it three three times in four verses. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. There it is. Be grateful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing praises, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you are a believer, God has stepped into your life and shown manifold kindness to you because of his promise to Moses and to David and to Jesus that he would, he, would, he would forgive and he would cleanse and he would welcome them into his family. You are a part of God's family. You are seated at his table. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, simply because of God's promises and his lavish kindness to you. Have you stepped back from that and been grateful recently? What's your gratitude meter at these days? Are you eating at his table with joy or are you focusing on all you need to consume? Oh man, I just want to have this, you know. Man, COVID just took so much away from me. I'm going to, I'm going to live it to the full this summer. I'm going to enjoy all of life and it's all going to be about me. Or are you going to be grateful for what God did during COVID and what God's grateful for what it's going to do this summer? Which which mindset do you have? Is it all about what's good for you or are you grateful for what God has done in your life? And some of you have faced some tough things, some difficult things. But you still have God and you still have his promises and you still have his presence in your life if you are his child. And this is what you, you have. It can't be taken away from you. It, that's the whole point of a covenant. It's, it's secure. It's yours regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your performance. He, you are still his child. You are eating at his table. 
Have you eaten at his table recently? Have you tasted of his forgiveness? Have you tasted of his mercy? Like, man, I don't deserve this. Man, I know that you're still on my side. I'm so grateful for that. Man, I, I was mean to this person, but you have been kind to me and allowed me to, to be repentant and go back to that person. Man, is so, I'm so grateful that you're in my life and helping me in those ways. God makes it clear that we, we don't gain that covenant love and that covenant kindness through our own efforts. Just, just for a second, think of Psalm 23, not from David's perspective, but, but from Mephibosheth. Here's a man who's lame, who's been probably been hiding out under a patron, hoping that David forgets about him for years. And now he's called into David's presence. And instead of being executed, he's like, welcome to the family. (laughs) And so he can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David here is acting exactly like God the Father wants him to act as that surrogate king. This is how God rules his world. He rules with kindness and mercy and grace. And forgiveness when we mess up. And lavish kindness to those he's made promises to. And David shows that exact mercy and grace and kindness to Mephibosheth. And you, who are outside of Israel, outside of those promises, yet God invites you into those promises simply by saying, Romans 10, 13 makes it clear, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's open to anyone. Not based on your background, not based on what you can do for God or what your skills are. You're coming like a lame man, enemy of God, simply receiving his mercy and grace. And the question is, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you returned God's loyalty, kindness to you by accepting it and eating at his table? You can show that same love by serving, by loving others, right? Just just to make this applicational partially, like spouses, Do you love your spouse like God loves his children? With mercy and grace, you're thinking, how can I show chesed to my wife this week? How can I show the overflow of of how much we are in covenant together and and let that pour out on my wife, pour out on my children? How can I I let this, this amazing 
covenant that we have together, these, these promises we made, how can I just let that pour out? In our church, do we pour out mercy and grace on each other? Like, man, look, I've received so much chesed from God. I want to pour it out on those around me. Why? Because, because I just want to return his loyalty. <laughs> and with gratitude. Man, isn't it great? I get to forgive someone because I've been forgiven. Isn't it great? I get to show kindness to someone who's been mean to me because I've been shown kindness when I've shown meanness to someone else. When someone's rebelling against my authority, I can show mercy and grace and, and bringing them back. Why? Because God showed mercy and grace to me. Do you know the chesed of God? Are you amazed at the table you're eating at? So much that with gratefulness you pour it out on other people. We have received grace upon grace. We sang it this morning, right? Grace greater than our sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we have received grace greater than our sin? Greater than our rebellion? Greater than our weaknesses? Greater than our failures? Then eat at his table. Delight in it. Remind yourself of this great God who rules this world, who, who guides and directs everything. And yes, even our failures and our weaknesses and our problems, he still pours his grace and mercy into. Because he's a great and awesome king who loves to pour chesed on all of us. Will you eat at his table as a family member? today. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us. We get caught up <laughs> in playing percentages or hiding in the herd, just playing the game of emotionalism, how bad do I feel, rather than eating at your table, rather than enjoying the goodness of who you are, the greatness of your rule in our lives. And Lord, we need that. Because too often I can feel like we're just hiding out, hoping no one notices the problems we have, hoping just no big hammer comes down from the sky to ruin our lives. When you have so much greater so much greater goodness and mercy and grace to show when we eat at your table and know your love. So may we, like Mephibosheth, sit at your table and eat of your greatness and enjoy your chesed forever. Because you are a great and good king. And you are our shepherd. And we thank you in your son's name. Amen.